Welcome to the May 2019 edition of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. We're back after a month-long break following the original airing of the last episode of Star Trek Discovery Season 2. For today's podcast, we will review Season 2, including its major themes and our favorite episodes. We'll then discuss other Star Trek related news. So Gary, let's get right to it. As most of our listeners know, season two, episodes one through five, were the last in which Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harbert served as Discovery showrunners and thus represented a particular vision of the second season. The first five episodes focused on three major themes. First thing was family, could be biological, foster, or based on communal relationships, for example, co-workers. The second one was science versus faith, a reliance on technology versus a belief in the influence of a divine power or spirit that affects one's life. And the third theme was the circle of life. So you had um, birth, death and also resurrection well that was definitely clear with the, with this season's uh, story arc we also found that there were several uh, plot lines that played out throughout the uh, season the first being a search for an answer to the seven red burst then there was the search for spock and his connection to the red angel which seemed at least initially, to be related to the seven red births. Then we had the nature of Michael's relationship with Spock. And at least they gave lip service to uh, the plot line of Ensign Sylvia Tilly and her progress uh, toward um, her progress in command training. Yeah, well, that too was in the first five episodes. <laughs> right, yeah. right. We also had Laurel's chancellorship at, um, on Klingon being challenged and then finding more sturdy ground. And then finally, the other major uh, plot line, at least in the first five episodes, was addressing the death of Dr. Hugh Colber. Needless to say, the firing of the showrunners had a major impact on the course of season two. You know, the shift in leadership paused the production during which we believe revisions were made in the season's story arc. In doing so, priorities and objectives appear to have been shuffled around in the remaining nine episodes. In addition, the show's adoption of the 930-year jump into the future, we believe, was a byproduct of that change. This, of course, is our speculation. I have no insider information to support this assumption, but the decision to erase the existence of Discovery pluck them out of the known Star Trek canon and set them beyond um, ridicule by people who claim to be Star Trek fans seems to have been de by design and not by by any original um, path that, the, that was evident in the first five episodes. Definitely. They were literally going where no Star Trek show has ever gone before. Mm. So let's look a little bit more deeply into uh, season two themes after the first five episodes. Right. So after Berg and Harberts were let go 
and Alex Kurtzman took over the reins to oversee the remaining episodes, there definitely was a change in trajectory. Discovery continued to address conflicts with canon, but made some significant uh, revisions in both the season's story arc and the importance of those aforementioned themes. For example, resolving conflicts with established canon. Although the show continued to make efforts to address discrepancies between conditions and circumstances in Discovery and those established by earlier Star Trek shows and films, it did so with varying degrees of subtlety. Sometimes it was almost as if they were pointing signs right at the same. <laughs> we're changing, th- we're, 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 we're sticking to canon here. You see that? Right, right. So... One of those was this whole thing about, you know, uh, did they have holographic technology during this time? For communication. For communication. So how many times were we reminded of Pike's preference for screen-to-screen communications over the holographic version introduced in Discovery? They even went so far as to inform us that they have effectively ripped the systems out of all communications technology on the enterprise. Right, so when they went right. through for ret- retrofit, mm-hmm. they supposedly took all the holographic technology out. Right, right. In fact, that's confirmed by number one, when um, Pike comes back onto the enterprise at the tail end of the season. That's right. There's also these inconsistencies in Klingon technology to address. Many of the complaints regarding the inconsistencies with the ships and equipment that the Klingon technology represented in comparison to previous series and films, it was revealed that Ash Tyler, torchbearer of Chancellor Norell, was overseeing the creation of the D7 series of the Klingon battlecruiser. The argument was given that it was a single design that was partially created to unify the fleet of ships that would help combat the potential divisiveness inherent with the Klingon clan social structure. So that basically means that if everybody was in the same design ships, there would be an easier way for them to stick, have an adherence as one people. Uh, We eventually see these ships in action by the end of the season. Then there's also the, the issue with Section 31. Initially, the showrunners stated, we would discover how Section 31 evolved from a space-age version of the CIA under the authority of the Admiralty into a very secretive covert intelligence operation autonomous uh, of Starfleet's chain of command that we were introduced to in Deep Space Nine. But what we saw at the end of season two was an agency destroyed by the control AI's desire for sentience. We're left with a huge question mark on what version of section 31 Ash Tyler is charged with developing at the end of the season. I would add to that that we're even a little questioning why Ash Tyler was pegged to be the person to redesign Section 31 in the first place. Right. Right. I mean, that seems like that's taking a big risk. That's taking a huge risk, which they just survived having a risk, taking a huge risk with devoting so much to control 
to a controlling uh, artificial intelligence. And, and who does Ash Tyler go get to help them out? Nothing but the Klingons. Was the Klingons. Right, so, right, right. you know, you're going to take the former torchbearer. Right. And actually a former Klingon. He right. has the actually... It's the body of right, right, a Klingon, right. and you're going to make him the head of Section 31. So it seems like it's answering the question, but it really doesn't seem as if it's answering the question. You know what I mean? Right, right, exactly. Um, next, we want to talk about family ties. The most significant canon-correcting topic left unresolved until the cities and finale was why Spock had never acknowledged the existence of his adopted sister Michael Burnham in later years and why no one had ever spoken about the discovery, its crew, or the spore drive. By the season finale we learned that that the truth about discovery and its crew was intentionally concealed so no one would learn how sentient beings in the galaxy were almost destroyed. Concealing the truth was sent, seen as a better option than risking the chance of someone else who might have the opportunity to play out this apocalyptic scenario with an artificial intelligence. Oddly enough, that's not going to stop artificial intelligence in the future <laughs> from trying to destroy um, human human race. Right. So I'm just saying, right. the idea th- th- their idea was a, they had a good intention. Didn't they, didn't exactly stop the other opportunities, however. Right. And then there are other changes too. So, for instance, while the search for the red angel and the meaning of the seven red births remained as a backdrop for the series, the focus really changed to the defeat of control. Mm-hmm. You know, as we mentioned, the super artificial intelligence embodied by Captain Leland, who was the director of Section 31. And, of course, they had the objective of eradicating all sentient life in the galaxy. Now, there was really nothing novel or complex no. in this treatment of the plot line that previously has been utilized in many other sci-fi right. stories, television shows, and films. Yeah, in, in Star Trek itself. Right, or in Star Trek itself. To add more depth to the plot arc probably would have required additional episodes and a more talented actor playing Leland to incur nuance and complexity to the storyline. But I think even more so, the challenge that they put up for themselves was taking this artificial intelligence and making it the villain, as it were, for the story. And if you look at the history of Star Trek across all the series and most of the films... For the most part, the when they have had that villain scenario, the villains usually been seeking revenge. Right. I mean, things like you know, Khan in the Wrath of Khan, um, Nero in the two thousand nine movie of uh, of Star Trek, and um, that usually hasn't pl- played out as anything more than a two dimensional straw man for them to fight against. Right. The most complex villain they have ever had in any show, whatsoever, and that's because it's was on the TV show was Goldacott on Deep Space Nine. But he had seven years to be right. developed over which. That's right. And the second one actually is Khan, the Khan because right. Khan evolves from Khan yeah, into television, and, and, te- then, television and then and then in the Wrath of Khan. Right, right, yeah. right, right. So and so in this case, they really just set the 
the control AI up as something that they have to fight. Right. And there's really nothing else to it. Right. The the only thing that you can that that you can reason is that okay, so the AI felt like humans or these other sentient beings right. were not perfect and right. so I'll just because the only way to make the galaxy safe is Which to is, get rid of these right. Being. Which is no different than Nomad right, from right, the original series right. or V'ger from That's Star right. Trek The Motion Picture. So we've seen this play out before. Right. So anyway, let's go on to uh, the next one being Tilly. Tilly's advancement towards a command position seemed to be sacrificed, really basically sacrificed after that fifth episode um, for, for the sake of using her as a tool for comic relief. Uh, Mary Wiseman's talents that, would, she, that she demonstrated in season one seem to have been underutilized in season two. They're re- in fact, I think her character more than any other series regulars suffered in, yes. in, a, in a rewrite of the remaining nine episodes. Yeah, her character really took a step backwards. Huge step backwards. In, in this season. You no know? development whatsoever. N- not whatsoever, There's right. A, there was only one other character in this season two that I think suffered worse than Tilly but she wasn't a series regular who was it I'm gonna number one oh okay all right but we'll get to that we'll get to that okay and then also the conflict between science versus faith was effectively dropped after the season's initial uh five episodes beginning with episode two we were introduced to several examples of Pike's knowledge and comfortability with religious belief. In fact, at last month's Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo, Anson Mount stated he played Captain Pike as someone with a religious upbringing who also felt comfortable with science. However, references to a belief system or being a follower of a particular faith disappeared following episode six, which is called The Sound of Thunder. In that episode, it is revealed that the great balance is merely a lie. By the end, Saru and the Kelpian people's devotion to that faith is is destroyed, leaving them to adopt a different code to live by, which we don't really know what that is. Right. Yeah. yeah, It's never resolved as though. So what do we believe now? Right. So once that episode ends, discussion of religion or faith systems disappear altogether. In the latter half of the season, the use of the word faith appears to be revised from a belief in in the divine to a commitment to a set of core principles or a trust in others, be they family or surrogate family members. Again, Pike is used to make those arguments. Right. So now let's talk about how they did that shift from faith to this uh, devotion to core principles. One example is, is the way they approached looking at Starfleet or a life in Starfleet. Mm -hmm. The strength of belief in one's guiding principles or crew members played out time and time again throughout the season. Pike summed up his credo several times with the statement, Starfleet is a promise. I give my life for you. You give your life for me. And nobody gets left behind. 
in one of the most memorable scenes in, in episode 13, Such Sweet Sorrow, Pike cites how each of the bridge crew made a difference in moving them closer to the objective of defeating the uh, control AI. And he and that devotion that they have together as a crew, as a unit, is the thing that he says he's he's satisfied with how they were able to create that that bond. Right. So that's what they have faith in. Right. You know in one another. Right, in one another. Another example is through the theme of family. So family uh, played out in several ways, such as with Saru and his sister Sirana, Dr. Hugh Colber and Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets, Michael Burnham, and her mother, Dr. Gabriel Burnham. However, we felt none was more engaging than the story arc of Michael and Spock's relationship. As stated in other podcasts, kudos to both Sonequa Martin-Green as Michael and Ethan Peck as Spock, as well as the series writers for developing such a realistic and appealing portrait of two siblings who must heal the open wounds of the past and become the source of encouragement, support, and inspiration to save sentient beings in their, gal- gal- in their galaxy from, a, from an apocalypse event. It amazes us how the two characters over the course of eight episodes made us care for each other and their relationship. This made their parting in the season's finale all the more touching and effective. So let's look at how the series also approached dealing with some of the legacy characters that they introduced. Um, since from the final ep- image of episode 15 in season 1, we were re- presented with the image of the USS Enterprise confronting the Discovery in mid-space. Um, we've, and therefore, we've known that season 2 was going to include some appearances in some manner from members of that famous ship's crew. Uh, casting announcements and story elements began to slowly trickle out over last summer that about the incorporation of the legacy characters of Spock, Captain Christopher Pike, and Number One. Now let's look at how well they were employed in the season story. Yeah. So, um, Captain Pike, as we said a number of times, um, was quite impactful. Uh, we were, you know, greatly impressed by Anson Mount's portrayal of Christopher Pike. Without a doubt, he is the or became the perfect example of the ideal Starfleet captain. The ongoing fan campaign to get him his own show is evidence of how Trek fans reacted to his interpretation. In contrast to last season's enigmatic Captain Gabriel Lorca. Mounts Pike is a man who represents the second act of a character we barely knew from the pilot of the original series. He is a man of faith who lives by his principles. In fact, he is used by the writers to embody important core principles of Starfleet when the show abandons a more faith-based view of the world, as evidenced in the following episodes. Beginning in episode one, after Pike takes command of the Discovery, 
we see, we are introduced to his way of introducing himself to the crew. In a speech he delivers to the bridge crew, he shares his record of service. He's aware of doing so will reveal that he's not perfect. Pike goes so far as to underscore the truth uh, by admitting that having asthma and getting an F in astrophysics at Starfleet Academy. But likewise, he assures them that he is not Lorca. Later on, he seeks to personalize his relationship with the roll call crew by allowing them to present themselves as individuals. And, and, and actually, this assists not only him, but also us as viewers of being able to single out these characters who for the entire first season, we barely knew what their names were or any distinct differences between them in any way to perform. He then inspires the crew with what becomes one of the most in, uh, inspi in, inspirational statements that he makes throughout the season. Be bold, be brave, be courageous. Yeah, and then during episode five, when Pike is deciding... Uh, you know, whether to take the discovery into the Massilio network in order to rescue Incentilli, we hear this preamble. He says, Starfleet is a promise. I give my life for you, you give your life for me, and no one gets left behind. We keep our promises. His statement reassures the bridge crew that the same treatment will be given to them if ever they are in danger. It also foreshadows the fate Pike will eventually confront years from now. The captain's fate is divulged to him in episode 12 when they, uh, where Pike is confronted with a vision of his future that reveals the tragic training accident that will change his life forever. For the first time during the season, we actually see him recoil in fear showing his vulnerability as a human being. Pike needs to take time to recenter himself to overcome his temporary paralysis. And he does so by reciting to himself the following mantra. You're a Starfleet captain. You believe in service, sacrifice, compassion, and love. Yeah, I mean, that is such a memorable moment. And um, it also reminds me, too, of Admiral Cornwell. Remember when she comes onto right. the Discovery? And, you know, Pike has been fighting, you know, uh, not doubt, but, um, but remorse for not having been able to join in with the Klingon right. War. Right, we, we find out that Starfleet... Um, commanded him not to participate in the Klingon war. So he actually sits, he and the crew sit the entire thing out. Right. So, so it's guilt. That's the word I'm yeah. looking for. They're, they're guilty mm -hmm. of the fact that they weren't able to uh, join in the fight. Right. But Corwell actually tells them why they were chosen. And that's because again, Pike and his crew embody these high ideals. Right. And so if somebody, if she, if humanity was going to be left, there was going to be some part of humanity left to go somewhere, maybe to start again. Right. They wanted to be those people. Right. They, the, I think the statement she makes to them is that we wanted our best. Right. We wanted our best. And I think that that's a, that's a glowing testimony to both him and the crew of the Enterprise. Yeah. 
So again, it's really no wonder that the fans really latched on to Pike and really, you know, fell in love with his with Anson Mount's portrayal. Right, and when he takes the time crystal, which I know a lot of people have questions about how does the time crystal function and whatnot. And but when he makes the decision to take it knowing full well that he is sealing his own fate, it's an extremely heroic moment. Mm-hmm. And oh, I think, definitely. And I think definitely. that's the that's the thing that you keep coming back to with with his character that in this one season he finds himself in situations where we know he he is in danger and he do, even after moments of doubt he chooses to make the decision to sacrifice. Yeah, he always takes the higher road. Okay, so Let's look now at Spock, who was one of the other uh, legacy characters that we were introduced to. In fact, that was the one that we were most excited about because we knew that they had to somehow resolve the relationship between he and Michael. So after Pike, I think that Spock received the best treatment overall of the of the three legacy legacy characters. Initially, he served as the generic MacGuffin for Discovery's mission. Spock had information about the seven red, red bursts that would assist them in discovering what was behind these anomalies and therefore the Enterprise had to go out and find him. Mm-hmm. Okay. But moreover, he might have information he might have had information that assisted them in solving the mystery of the Red Angel, which was equally of importance to Pike and to Starfleet. At first Spock is aggressively antagonistic towards Michael, um, holding on to deep-set angers and frustrations going back to their childhood. Mm -hmm. And while he seeks to recover from um, this mind meld with the Red Angel that he had, um, that had mentally incapacitated him, he's also dealing with his own ability to maintain his emotional state. Right. In some moments... It's as if Spock's critique of Michael and her actions are actually parroting several of the criticisms some fans had about her character from season one. I mean, that is to say, um, she is she, that she has a tendency to place the burden of solving every problem on her own shoulders, and that she has to be right all the time. And he calls her out on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over the course of the season, as the two siblings struggle with each other and struggle with their the terms of their relationship with each other, they discover that they represent a much-needed balance that each of the other one needs as they attempt to tackle and ultimately come to terms with the issues of identity and also purpose. That's right. So then we come to number one, which um, is the one legacy character that is served poorly and is barely seen throughout the season. And that character, of course, is number one. She briefly appears in three episodes. Uh, one is an oval for, uh, for Chiron. And the two parts of the season finale, uh, known as Such Sweet Sorrow. Uh, in the two-parter, viewers are given a glimpse of her resourcefulness, savvy maneuverings, and bravery. But Rebecca um, Romaine 
as number one does not receive enough screen time to justify her casting in such a minor role. And in fact, it really does her character a disservice. Yes. Um, be, and, and I think, but I think that that's also a byproduct of the changes that they made right. in the story arc for the remaining nine episodes. Because I, I, I would like to have believed there was some way in which she would have been more prominent. That she would have got more screen time. Yeah. 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 yeah because, well, this is something we hadn't talked about, but um, I think we both also believe that Spock's role probably get expanded too. I think that's what happened. I think that was the trade because it was clear. And in fact, I think you and I both expressed this and I know I know I heard it from other fans that there was some frustration at the beginning of the season with how much Spock was a tease that they would just right. get there before he left or they would just find something and then he wasn't there or they'd find his ship and then all of a sudden Giorgio would walk off of it you right. know and so it wasn't that you were always he was always outside of their reach that's right and I think that that what they did was they actually moved up introducing him. That's right. Because by episode seven, we see him. We finally see him. And then he becomes an active participant with lies and whatnot by set episode eight. Right. He becomes an integral part of the story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about our favorite episodes from um, season two. For me, it's New Eden, which was the second episode of the season. Um, New Eden rekindled an argument that has been debated throughout the entire history of Star Trek, one between faith and logic. And the place of religion under the Federation has long been a subject Star Trek has dabbled with, whether it was accepting a spiritually driven potential members um, of, of a society like the Bajorans in Deep Space Nine or or the more typical scenario of our Starfleet heroes encountering a world where faith drives a society rather than science or technology as in the case of you know the uh, Kaminar with the with Saru and his people but we also have been but for the most part we've been presented with a concept where a logical approach to life has been focused, been the main focus of the way Starfleet has presented itself, and that that's been the way in which most of most of what we've seen called um, Star Trek has been presented. You know, when you look at the in New Eden, we see the latter approach as the Discovery finds itself 150 light years away in the Beta Quadrant, where they discover the planet of Terralysium with a colony of humans from the pre-warp Earth. The crew must figure out how to save this world from imminent danger while also hiding the fact that they come from a more advanced society in fear of having an impact on their development. While the episode is a little lighter on the spectacle than the season two premiere brother it makes up for it by presenting the classic trek pull between faith and reason in some interesting ways amongst its crew after pike burnham and um lieutenant 
Owasekun beam down to investigate the colony, they find a society that is living in blissful harmony, cut off from the galaxy around them and their own kind. But for a surprising reason, they're descendants of a group of survivors of Earth's Third World War 200 years prior, transported out of certain death by a mysterious angel and put onto a world thousands of light years away given the fact that their salvation took place from a angelic looking being in a literal church it turned the colonists into a deeply religious people they formed a new faith together literally out of the scraps of number of holy texts from all sorts of earth religions to find common ground in the red angel there are skeptics to this way of life as presented in the character of J jacob who is a descendant of engineers but even as the episode closes with the lights being restored to working in the church thanks to a generator given to jacob by captain pike there was an impression that this would not be the last time we would see terralysium unfortunately that's actually what it turned out to be. And I think that too, it's my suspicion that that was also a, a, a sacrifice to the new change because I, I yep. because with them abandoning the, the conflict between faith and religion, that Terralysium had to go because they were no longer gonna be dealing with it in that context. Because right. if you look at it, control presents the perfect example of adherence to a logic scientific approach and, and a belief in technology working and what happens is that's when it goes wrong it shows how equally flawed that approach is if you don't have something else guiding you that's right so but, but they are going to end up on terralysium 930 years in the future yeah. so yeah. so it's going to be interesting to see what has become of that planet right so. right so I too enjoyed New Eden. So I wanted to first say that, but um, if I had to pick another episode, mm -hmm. um, I would definitely pick If Memory Serves, which is episode eight. So this lean, emotional and engaging episode pays off on much of what has been set up earlier, specifically regarding Burnham and Spock's relationships. After escaping with her brother from Leland in Section 31, Michael Burnham pilots her shuttle to the coordinates that Spock has been repeating backwards. The destination is Talos IV, a planet with which Spock and Pike are very familiar. Michael takes this dangerous step in an, in an attempt to discover the truth behind Spock's deteriorating mental state and it's linked to the mystery of the Red Angel. But is a planet where reality, uh, where reality is an illusion the best place to seek the truth? So Pike also has an unexpected rendezvous with Vina, a woman with whom he fell in love with when he previously visited Talos IV. Their reunion proves their emotional attachment to each other still runs deep, but they are unable to find 
circumstances to support a more permanent solution for their relationship. When they find they must once again part, the viewer cannot help but feel a sense of helplessness that overcomes Pike, who must choose duty over personal happiness. Right, right. Yeah, it's a really bittersweet ending to that episode. Yes, yes. And, and, and again, because, as he said, he's playing the second act of Pike, you really do feel... Be- based on what little you knew about him beforehand and how much they're able to flesh out that's right about he, him and his motivations that that helps set up a much more interesting reading of the third act when he is injured and in, in the with the, the mobile wheelchair that's right okay now let's go on since we've talked about the show let's go on let's talk a little bit about upcoming uh, Star Trek news season three. Showrunners Alex Kurtzman and new showrunner Michelle Paradise are currently writing episodes for season three. Production is rumored to be begin in July of this year. In fact, uh, they've already uh, showed pictures of you know stagecraft people uh, put it, you know putting together props and. You know, because, you know, obviously they have to design whole new sets now because they're 930 years into the future. So, which is great because of the creativity of people like Gersha Phillips, the costume designer and the production designer. I think they're just going to knock it out of the park. But 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 yeah, it's going to be a huge investment because they're going to need new scenery and new costumes and whatnot and more than what they were anticipating. Yeah. So now we want to talk about the Star Trek franchise in general. And the following news is based on a May 9th uh, Los Angeles Times article on the Star Trek universe. Yeah, so the fourth Kelvin universe film is still in limbo due to a contractual impasse with actors Christopher Pine, who plays um, Captain Kirk, and Chris Hemsworth, who played Kirk's father um, in the original, well, in the 2009 movie Star Trek. Um, Also, there's been no resolution to what to do with the character of Chekhov, who was played by um, Anton Yeltsin and had died in a freak car accident. For all intents and purposes, it appears this project is probably dead. Right. Right. Which I think makes me happy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, we will not get into that. Well, I take that back. I don't think I know. I'm happy. Okay. So, uh, also, we want to talk about the Quentin Tarantino Project. Do we have to? Oh, well, the Tarantino Project received a green light from Paramount to assemble a team of writers and begin developing a script. No word as of yet on whether the film will use the current Kelvin Timeline cast or acquire a new cast uh, for the iconic original series roles. Well, the if they, I mean, although I'm not really a fan of him writing a, a screenplay for Star Trek, a script by him or a script by anybody else could could get them out of the con- the impasse they have with with uh, Pine and Hemsworth. Right. I will I imagine he won't be dealing with the father of 
James Kirk, and therefore you right. don't have, you don't have that star seeking a star's salary, and so that could mean more money could go into Pine's uh, uh, check that would allow him actually to you know get past the impasse. Because my understanding is it's really about dollars. It it wasn't about the script issues. Right. It wasn't about screen time. It was really about getting paid what they felt they needed to get paid. And both of those guys are at a point in their careers based on the success they've had, the recognition that they've gotten that gives them the impression they ought to be making good money now. And remember that <clears throat> version of it, uh, uh, the one that is at an impasse, that, mm-hmm. that project, uh, that was the one that was supposed to be directed by a woman, so she would have been the first yeah. uh, woman director of any of the Star Trek yeah, films. Yeah, that's really what's sad. About. That, that is sad. That is sad. That's right. So let's talk about the what's happening on TV. And what we mean by that is primarily what's happening on CBS All Access. The three live shows that, will, that have been designated the... Uh, air and rotation are as you know Star Trek Discovery now we have the t- the name for the new show Star Trek Picard with a beautiful uh, uh, setup that we've got and a show based on Section 31 starring Michelle Yao as uh, Giorgio so the Los Angeles Times article featured an interview with Kurtzman, but we're not sure how long ago the interview actually took place. For instance, no question is raised concerning a possible Pike Spock series set in the 23rd century. And regarding the Section 31 series, the reporter does not mention that on the last episode of Discovery, Giorgio was on a ship headed 930 years into the future. So does the Section 31 show take place in the 33rd century, or does Giorgio somehow make it back to the 23rd century? Yeah, yeah, that's going to be that's gonna have to be resolved because um, that's a big question mark. Yes, I mean she's on she's on the Discovery when it takes off, and there's no two ways about that. That's right. So regarding the Picard series, uh, which debuts later this year, or I'm starting to hear people set up the possibility of it beginning at the beginning of 2020. Um, Kurtzman stated that the mandate was to make a more psychological show, a character study about this man in his emeritus years. There are so few shows that allow a significantly o- older protagonist to be the driver. Not that it, it would be Matlock in space, is what Kurtzman calls it. <laughs> uh, what happens, but, but more like what happens when circumstances have conspired to not give him the happiest of endings. So hopefully, it's a reinforcement of, the, of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry's vision of optimism. He's going to have to do, go deep, He's, what I mean to say is he's going to have to go through deep valleys to get back to the light. So the show's first teaser trailer opens on a vineyard for the, for the Picard winery that we were first introduced to in the Next Generation Season 4 episode entitled Family. We return to the family homestead for the TNG series finale 
all good things. The Picard series trailer provided us with a few bits of additional information, such as the fact that Picard reaches the rank of Admiral in Starfleet, but due to some life-altering event that occurred 15 years before the start of the show, he has left the organization. All we know of the events is that Picard commanded what is called the greatest rescue armada in history. It isn't mentioned whom he was rescuing or from what, but speculation has most people seeing this as connected to the Romulan homeworld's destruction when their son went supernova. These events were depicted at the beginning of the 2009 motion picture Star Trek that was co-written by Alex Kurtzman. They introduced the Calvin timeline to fandom. Star Trek Picard has been announced to be set in the Prime Universe as with all the other Star Trek TV series. However the events play out, the result is that Picard loses faith and resigns or is willingly decommissioned. So I'm looking forward to that. I and, am too. I am uh, too. I think I think it's exciting. So next, concerning the two animated series, not much new information was provided, at least in this article. An animated series for kids is being developed for Nickelodeon, while an adult animated show entitled Lower Dicks will focus on lower-ranking non-bridge Starfleet service members. Uh, you know. Usually, you know, we don't see those people. Right. And so now we're going to get a glimpse into their life. In fact, there was an episode on Next Generation called Lower Decks, which actually featured those characters. Oh, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so other news of the events that have happened in the last month since we did our last podcast. What We Left Behind, looking back at Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the documentary that was privately funded by um, a number of fans, uh, was premiered. About thousands of fans. Oh, man. It was, yeah, yeah. There was a, it was a crowdfunding source that did a fantastic, fantastic job. On May 13, we viewed the documentary What We Left Behind, looking back at Star Trek Deep Space Nine at our local theater. Co-produced by Deep Space Nine's showrunner and executive producer, Ira Stephen Bear, the film makes the case why so many consider Deep Space Nine as the best of all the Star Trek series. The film also makes the case for a revival of the series 26 years after its first premiered in 1993. Besides interviews of the main and reoccurring cast members, the documentary includes a treatment of the first episode of the hypothetical eighth season for DS9. The film also features remastered clips of the series that have been upgraded to play in high definition. And the show looks fantastic. It looks really good. Tell me about it. it yeah. really, I mean, it definitely looks like it was just shot. Right, 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 right. One of the most interesting aspects of the film concentrates on the choice of casting Avery Brooks in the lead role as Captain Benjamin Sisko and how his race figured prominently in the actor's approach to playing the, the character 
as well as his relationship with other cast members. Unlike other science fiction shows, DS9 depicted strong black familial relationships and in several episodes showed how race served as a divisive tool of oppression. The film premiered last fall in Los Angeles and is still being screened in special events around the world. It soon as will be available for purchase for home viewing. My understanding is that from the documentary, they said that a, that the DVD would be available August sixth. Oh, okay. So we highly recommend the documentary, not only for DS Nine fans, but also for those who want to learn why this series is as engaging, challenging, and entertaining now as it was over twenty five years ago. And also, we want to state that you know we know that. Probably in the history of Star Trek, this one was this that the DS9 was probably as controversial to some as Discovery, and I think that you really should look at the show now in a context of seeing it for what it was. I think that you know they cite in the documentary that it kind of was sandwiched between two other series, either you know it started with Deep Space Nine. When it premiered, there was Next Generation, and then before it went off the air, there was Voyager, and so it really didn't have a chance to be itself. But I think that you should. I think you might want to see, see why it is such a, a beloved uh, series to so many. And and next, our next podcast, we're going to delve deeper into the documentary and discover and discuss uh, DS 9s um, why it's so highly regarded. So next we're going to talk about Nichelle Nichols, who announced her farewell appearances. So, as you know, uh, Nichelle Nichols was the best, you know, uh, actress, you know, to play Lieutenant Uhura, or she had the best characterization of Lieutenant Uhura. Um, and it's been announced that she's making her final public appearances over the next 12 months with her last being a special farewell event entitled Hailing Frequencies Open One Last Time. And that will happen on the weekend of May, um, in May 2020. For her final appearance, Nichelle is doing photo opportunities and signings exclusively. There'll be no panel appearances. According to a representative for Ms. Nichols, she has confirmed the following upcoming events thus far. Um, she will be appearing, actually she's appearing this weekend at the Phoenix Fan Fusion in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, she'll also be at the Wisconsin Comic Convention in Milwaukee, Wisconsin from June 28th to June 30th. Then she's slotted to go to Florida Supercon in Miami, Florida, the weekend of the 4th of July, from July 4th to the 7th. Um, next, she'll be at Shore Leave Convention in Baltimore, July 12th through the 14th. And then uh, she'll be going to Las Vegas for the official Star Trek convention in Las Vegas, Nevada, July 31st to the 4th in and then um, the last two that she currently has scheduled are 
excuse me, our Cincinnati Comic Con Expo in Cincinnati, September 20 to the 22nd in 20 in 2019, and then finally New York Comic Con in New York, uh, October 3rd through the 6th. The tour will conclude May 1st through the 3rd. Uh, 2020 with the Nichelle Nichols Farewell Convention in Burbank, California. So the lineup of guests is still in, in progress but current or I should say it's uh, currently being confirmed but current confirmations include Star Trek stars Walter Koenig of the original series, Tim Russ of Voyager and Marina uh, Sirtis of The Next Generation. Also, a number of, of original uh, ser- uh, of the original series guest stars signed up, and that includes Gary Lockwood, Sally Kellerman, Michael Forrest, Mar- 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 Marietta Hartley, Jack Donner, Charlie Brill, Tanya Lamani, uh, Barbara Luna, and Francis Nguyen. The original series behind the scenes people such as DC Fontana, Michael and Denise Okuda will also be there. The event will include a party and a banquet which Nichelle will attend and there are plans for a final stage event with various uh, original series celebrities and Nichelle as well. The event is being managed by Atan Khan. Uh, formerly Planet Expo, the same company that produced James Duhon's 2004 farewell show and Walter Koenig's Hollywood Star Celebration in 2012. Representatives for Ms. Nichols say more dates will be added. And for an updated listing of her upcoming events, you should go to uhura.com um, to, to look for those. Also, um, note some of the above events have yet to be added to the website as new dates are being um, just recently confirmed. Such as, we assume she may, she should, she might be going to the San Diego Comic Con, but that's not listed. As we as we reported last summer, Nichols was diagnosed with moderate progressive dementia. Her son, Kyle Johnson had gone to court seeking oversight powers in the 86-year-old actress's business. Presently, she plans on moving in with her son, who has been acting acting as her proxy and will be joining her on the farewell tour. I think we join every Star Trek fan in thanking Nichelle for her years of contribution to the world of Star Trek. We hope this farewell tour and convention are a wonderful capstone to a productive career. Our prayers go out to her and her family at this time of transition. So up next, um, until the Picard series has its premiere, we will post special podcasts on a monthly basis on special themes and Star Trek news. Our June podcast will specifically take a deeper dive in discussing the documentary, What We Left Behind, and the series that celebrates Deep Space Nine. However, if you have uh, other suggestions for Star Trek-related topics you would like us to tackle 
for our podcast, please do not hesitate to contact us. In closing, until next time, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD, on Facebook at Facebook.com, Star Trek AOD, at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.